Um, well, hello everyone. Uh, welcome again to MEI's flagship series 101. Thank you for joining us today. Today is the ninth lecture in the series. My name is Tatiana and it's my pleasure to welcome not only you today but also our guest speaker, Dr. Alanud al Sharik. Now today we're going to be talking about the role of women and youth in driving change in the Middle East. Many Middle East countries are undertaking an ambitious process of economic transformation, where they're trying to reduce economic dependence on oil and gas and seeking alternate engines of growth. Aside from pursuing economic reforms and diversifying their economies, they are focusing on educating the young and empowering women. The Middle East is a very young region. Those between the ages of 15 to 35 make up something like around 34% of the region's population but it also has very high rates of unemployment and underemployment of youth, especially for women, young women. For the Middle East region, the intersection of economic and social challenges and difficulties with regional stability and global instability is a potent intersection. All of us will have to adapt to a low carbon future, but the Middle East faces sharper problems than most regions in surmounting this disruption as it needs to diversify and find alternate sources of growth and upliftment for its populations. So how will governments in the Middle East manage their youth populations? Since 2011, youth now have access to more information, yet many of the wider political and socioeconomic factors that contributed to the Arab Spring endure. Will governments change their responses to the challenges and opportunities of youth, and if so, how? We also see the role of women changing as well, at least in some Gulf states. Is this trend sustainable? And in the long term, what will be the political, economic, and social implications of this erosion of patriarchy? Now here to help us make sense of these issues and more is Dr. Alanun Al-Sharik. Dr. Al-Sharik is the director of IPCA Strategic Consultancy and an associate fellow at Chatham House's Middle East and North Africa program and the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, DC. She has held senior consultative and teaching positions in academic, governmental, and non-governmental institutions in the Arabian Gulf and abroad. Dr. Al-Sharik holds a BA from King's College London and a Master's and PhD from the School of Oriental and African Studies. Her publications include books such as The Gulf Family and Popular and Political Cultures of the Arabian Gulf States. In recognition of her work to improve gender equality in the Middle East, she was awarded the Knighthood of the National Order of Merit by the French government in 2016, and was also named one of the BBC's 100 Women of 2019, a list of the most inspiring and influential women from around the world. I'm very glad to have Dr. Alanud with us, and I'm really looking forward to what she has to say today. Um, Dr. Alanud will speak first, um, and she will give us a broad sketch of the topic. Um, I'll follow with uh, some questions, and we can use those to maybe delve a bit deeper into the issues or get some details. After which, we'll open up uh, things to questions from the audience. Uh, we're also taking written questions, so you can send those in via the chat function addressed to either myself or the events team. I'd like to invite those watching and listening in to please feel free to send in your questions at any time during this event. So over to you, Dr. Alanud, the floor is yours. Thank you, Tatiana. Thank you for this uh, encompassing introduction, both to myself and to the issues we will be discussing today. Um, looking at youth and gender and their intersections in the Middle East, but more specifically, I'd like to speak today about the Arab states in the Middle East. So um, 
I Sorry, think, um, are you sharing your screen at, at the moment? Your, your screen doesn't... No, I will, no, I will start sharing it in, ah, in a minute. All right, okay. All right. Uh, the, the question of youth is an interesting one. It's one that the world is grappling with at the moment. Um, I'm a, a task force leader in the uh, T20 right now on youth and migration. And there's a lot of conversations today on who are youth? What are the age groups? And why is the transition from youth to adulthood uh, being delayed? We see this in, in a lot of places in the world. It's being delayed uh, because of structural uh, reasons, political reasons, social reasons, but also because of I think the choices that the youth themselves are making and the Arab states uh, are not immune to this global transition in terms of definitions of youth and youth expectations. Uh, if we wanted to take a closer look at what that means for youth and especially young women, because I, I think when we speak about youth collectively, we forget that for a lot of people, the experience of young women uh, as a part of youth is similar, but it also presents its own challenges and its own needs. So uh, Tatiana had started us off with the idea of labor and labor issues in the um, Arab Middle East. She said that uh, unemployment is problematic uh, in the Middle East and North Africa region, and uh, it has been problematic for the past 25 years. So when, when we look at the issues that came up during the Arab Spring, we can see that, that they had have their roots in economic issues. And I argue this uh, in a paper that I wrote in 2011, looking at reform and rebirth in the Middle East and, and positioning the Arab Spring, let's say revolutions, as starting from an economic perspective, a perspective that, um, sees the struggle of governments to remove subsidies and see them, seeing them failing to provide jobs and security for a lot of their population, especially the youth. So if we frame this as the starting point in our conversation, we see that this unemployment is especially acute among young women. And it's problematic for both young men and young women because it delays the transition in terms of uh, what can, can, they, can they do when they're facing uh, three main issues. Uh, weakness in the education system. The education system is not providing them with the tools necessary to enter into the workforce. And then there's um, a mismatch between the labor demands and what they are being offered in terms of uh, vocational training, and degrees, etc. And, and I think more, more importantly, uh, the expectation of, of <clears throat> many young people uh, in terms of wages, in terms of positions, in terms of the reality of low-level entry positions and, and what they, they feel like they, they need to, they need to, to reach. And, and women, uh, in this part of the world, they suffer from social discrimination built on, as Tatiana said, patriarchal practices, but also uh, exclusion and discrimination that's really tied into two, two ideas, the idea of guardianship, guardianship over women and women's bodies, and the idea that 
since there are so few jobs, the priority should go to men because they're interested with provision and women's place is in the home, it's in the domestic sphere. Um, so if we, if we think of what this means in terms of uh, people who are between, uh, you know, a, a transitional phase between uh, childhood and, and adulthood, then, then we see that uh, for the Arab states, the number is, is not actually around 30%. It, it could go up to, to almost 60%. Uh, and, and this intensifies the burdens on Arab states to provide jobs, to provide real solutions, to find ways to integrate women within the economy. Uh, and it, it, it becomes magnified when there's political instability and there's revolts against authoritarian regimes. So if I, if I may start sharing, um, why do we need a new approach? Because what's been happening so far in terms of top down hasn't been enough in resolving uh, these issues. Uh, if, we, if we look at um, the, the, the numbers, we, we find that, for example, <clears throat> the Arab Youth Survey shows that half of, of Arab youth are considering immigrating from the region. And of course, you have uh, areas where there is uh, civil unrest and prolonged economic stagnation like Lebanon uh, leading those numbers. Uh, and other, other areas where perhaps the quality of life is better, they're, they're less than those numbers. Um, and the idea is that a, a, a solution is not going to come from top down, uh, is very clear uh, in feelings towards corruption within uh, these, these nations. So 77% of Arab youth uh, complain about corruption in their own country. So we can see that there's a, a trust crisis between youth and their governments. Uh, and uh, we find that the, the satisfaction uh, gap uh, between the Arab states shows that this, the, there are less of these problems in the Gulf cooperation countries, but that's because the quality of life is higher in these richer states. And I, I'm going to take a closer look at um, uh, what that means in terms of these challenges. So youth are now uh, in, a, in a kind of a confrontational position with their governments. They, they uh, strongly suspect them of uh, corruption. They, they don't feel like they have a future there. So a very high percentage of them feels like immigration uh, is uh, the only solution. And this is, can be broken into uh, another set of challenges and taboos uh, to do with uh, gender and gender roles and prescribed gender roles and the role of women within a patriarchy, but also uh, there's no uh, room for uh, <clears throat> uh, let's, uh, open uh, uh, sexual self-expression outside of the prescribed uh, gender roles. Um, and then there are issues with the ruling establishment itself. 
this manifests not only in, in corruption, but in terms of expectations of greater power sharing. Uh, now that the, the youth have access to platforms and technologies that uh, encourage more transparency, they have higher expectations. They're used to having a platform where their opinion matters. And this is kind of an, an, uh, an, a novel idea in a lot of parts of the Arab world where it's, it's more of an um, kind of an autocratic system and the, the, the people are more passive participants than active participants in the process. Uh, religion uh, dominates uh, conservative societies such as uh, the Arab states and, and these can also um, lead to uh, pockets of ethnic discrimination especially when there's a nationalistic language growing. Uh, and uh, all of this leads to, <clears throat> I would say, a struggle between uh, uh, an inherited culture that places uh, a male figurehead above a pyramid of hierarchies. And uh, the, the young and women uh, come near the bottom of this pyramid of, of hierarchies. Uh, pyramid of, of obedience, we can call it in this way, and between a, dis, a, a disruptive youth culture that now has, has uh, aspirations and ambitions and, and tools and sees that this inherited uh, traditional model has not led to uh, the greatest uh, political stability or economic opportunity or uh, social justice. So this is where the, the challenge comes in. And then you have interesting ideas coming out of research. So I, I read this quote um, that the, the UAE represents a kind of universal myth for young Arabs. They see an Arab state which appears to have bridged the divide between modernity and a familiar Arab and Muslim identity. So do we take this to be the ideal state uh, that uh, Arab youth uh, wish to see replicated in their own countries? Uh, the, the UAE also has a very um, woman forward strategy that it's pushing uh, top down from the government. Uh, they've uh, initiated uh, a, a, um, a rule very recently that uh, um, guarantees equal pay for men and women in, in the private sector. Uh, they have uh, quotas, uh, a 50% quota in their federal council for women. They have a quota of, I think, about 30% in their uh, governmental jobs. So, and they have nine female ministers and the, the head of the federal national council is a woman. So, so this, this model of, uh, <clears throat> we are, uh, Muslim and Arab, but also modern, and and uh, we uh, we can be conservative in the way we dress uh, and in our social traditions, but we can we can adopt uh, uh, more liberal attitudes towards women in the in the labor market uh, and to, towards the different ethnicities and nations that that can come and live and work in the UAE. <clears throat> so. Um, this, this presents an interesting uh, idea for, for us. Uh, of course, 
like other, other Arab states, there are limits to a political and social uh, expression in the UAE. So uh, where does this figure into uh, Arab youth aspirations uh, remains uh, a question to, to be delved into. <clears throat> so what, is, what has happened with, with uh, gaining access to uh, social media and to different narratives uh, of not only current self-identity, but uh, historical self-identity. And these are two, two pictures uh, that I'm presenting to you from my country, Kuwait. Uh, the black and white one is in, uh, was taken in the 60s and uh, uh, the, the, the colored one was taken a few years ago. And um, they show that actually, when we look at the way that uh, women used to dress or the social expectations in the past or the, the let's say the, the general um, social tolerance for uh, um, what makes up a, a good, uh, national woman can be very different. So when when we we are told that uh, this is the way women traditionally dressed, or this is the way our mothers dressed in the past, now it is easy to to share uh, archival images from the past that challenge these narratives. And this is not just when when it comes to uh, the situation of women, but it comes to the multiplicity of cultural narratives that exist uh, and that may be controlled by the homogenous national identity narrative of states. So um, the question of, of uh, rewriting history and looking at uh, oppositional narratives to the ones pushed by the state is something that, that is really taking place in the virtual space as well as in academic writings in the Arab world. And it's really fueling a lot of debates around youth and women. So uh, when, when, we, when we look at what the Arab barometer has to say about women, uh, one of the things that, that comes up, uh, especially when we look at uh, some of the work that was done during COVID, while a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of women and a lot of people around the world had to move online. Uh, in the in the Arab world, there's limits on public debates offline, so public debates happen in a lot of countries mainly online. But with COVID, this became a universal reality: work and everything uh, related to political debates, etc., uh, had to go online. And one of the 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 things that stuck out to me was they say that Arab women face multiple layers of invisibility, marginalization, and inequality. Um, and and I, would, I would add to that that it's reflected in the low percentage of women in leadership positions across the Arab world. It's, it's much lower than, than, the, than the global average. And uh, I would say that, it, that it, it is also intertwined with the issues that uh, are swept under the rug because of shame and because they, they're seen to be family uh, oriented, such as domestic violence and honor killings and honor crimes and uh, 
the issue of sexual harassment. And this is, this is something that the, the, the different Arab states have grappled with, some of them very, uh, very openly uh, in, in protests that, that are even taking place right now. Uh, uh, Egypt lately has gone through this issue of sexual harassment and uh, needing better laws. Uh, and then in, in other places, you, you, will, you will not find this uh, being discussed at all for uh, reasons of propriety or uh, because uh, there, there is no kind of appetite to open this can of worms and then have to go into, uh, you know, further uh, issues to do with policing the way men behave towards women. So um, a lot of this activism is taking place uh, in an online sphere. So we have political protests online and of course a lot of the uh, what they call electronic crime laws shifted after the Arab Spring to control the space. But also it's a place where people can socially experiment with their movements. Civil societies would uh, test an idea out uh, on the online space and see if there's an appetite for it before uh, taking it uh, offline and uh, trying to implement it uh, in reality. Uh, we saw a lot of gender activism take place uh, online. And with that, of course, comes a lot of gender trolling. And we saw citizen journalism happen uh, at amazing uh, rates in the Arab world because we have the the, especially in the Gulf, we have the highest penetration uh, rates in the world and, and also some of the most advanced uh, networks and, and a lot of people are early adopters and spend many hours online. Uh, but the, 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 the flip side of that is of course that this um, creates silo effects online and uh, there is there is a kind of a lack of moral accountability uh, when when people are naming and shaming and it it had severe consequences for many people during the Arab Spring because there was naming and shaming campaigns taking place uh, on Facebook taking place uh, in Twitter uh, and it led to to arrests and it it led to uh, you know, the loss of livelihood for, for a lot of people. And so uh, this, this idea of holding governments accountable is great, but the, the flip side of it is what, what we also saw develop with, uh, you know, the electronic bots online and, and uh, uh, propaganda machines and, and creating uh, online agendas to disseminate fake news and create issues or take sides in an issue. So it, this created another trust crisis online, which was a safe protest space for a while. Now it, it faces the same trust crisis. Uh, and here, here are some of the, some of the local uh, reactions to what was happening around this time of really fiery political engagement right after the Arab Spring. And you can see the blue Twitter birds being shot down by somebody in a, in a police uniform. And you can see a young man releasing these birds. So it, it really encapsulates 
the, the struggle between the younger generation and the more uh, kind of uh, conservative, uh, uh, wanting to control the narrative aspect of the establishment. Uh, so the, these are really the, the things that, that we have been left with, which is how do you control hate speech online? If you give people freedom and, and if you want to make it an inclusive space, how do you control hate speech, uh, you know, whether it's against, against women and the burden of ambassadorship that every woman online has to not only represent herself, but she has to represent uh, her family and then her, her, her nation and then all Arab women and maybe all Muslim women as well. So it's, it's layers of, of expectation. Uh, and um, this is why there, there are much less women engaged online than, than men, at least with, with active uh, and open uh, real accounts, let's say. Uh, and then uh, how, how do you protect yourself as an activist from, from being caught up uh, within, within social media specific issues? Uh, and how, how do you control uh, your identity between the self-censorship that young people in our part of the world have to, um, let's say, have to live under? Because, as I said, they're not representing just themselves, that they represent a family and a tribe and, and maybe an area. So, so they, they, they're aware that their actions might have repercussions beyond themselves. Uh, and then how do you uh, prevent young people from crossing electronic crime laws that are changing as new platforms emerge and new spaces for error or for revolution uh, are created? So this is, this is an example of um, uh, a discussion that I've explored several times in, in some of my studies about co-opting the social media space, this struggle of authority between governments and between young people primarily uh, who, who uh, you know, they, they do their own citizen journalism and they follow these influencers that, that can be, you know, our, our version of reality TV stars at time and can command uh, a lot of money for, for posts and sponsored posts. And they've been co-opted by some governments to fulfill uh, you know a, a certain uh, trajectory that they want young people to engage with uh, and and this is an example uh, for the, the the Yemen war when it was first started uh, a very famous influencer was sent to cover it uh, and the coverage was much more intimate than the coverage that that happens with traditional news media so uh, at, I, I want to uh, close on this idea of the narrative and who controls it uh, and what, what, what has been happening right now. Why is it important that all these debates are happening online for both youth and women is that we, we've had these uh, very entrenched, uh, as I said, pyramids of hierarchies and also uh, halos uh, around um, the, the men at the very top of the pyramid, whether they be from 
the religious establishment or from the ruling elites. And what has happened online over the past eight years, eight or 10 years is that these icons, as they've, they've sort of come down to the level of uh, the, the normal citizen online, which is the only place where citizens can, can access many of these figures and send them questions and interact with them, uh, they, they become demystified as they, they overshare and ultimately everybody online overshares uh, and the, the, <clears throat> the people around them overshare. So uh, for the first time, the lavish lifestyles are exposed, uh, the, the way they are with their children is exposed. So when you have a, a religious uh, scholar, for example, urging young, young men to go on the jihad and then uh, in the same breath, congratulating his, his son for getting a, a very uh, a prestigious degree from an Ivy League university, you realize that there's, there's two very different uh, approaches to his household and to what he's urging uh, young men from other households to do. Um, and the, the, same, the same thing with uh, the very uh, kind of closed enclaves of, of ruling elites that now are, are being shared, their lifestyles, their private jets, their, their homes. And, and this is generating a very different conversation that I wager will continue as uh, the, the real structural problems, uh, especially economic uh, structural problems, continue uh, to occur in this part of the world and, and the social contract between rulers and who they rule gets renegotiated because now there's a lot of awareness, there's a lot of cross-state sharing and as competition between states grows, uh, they are more interested in, in revealing the wrongdoings of, of uh, ruling elites, etc. in other states and, and this has a knock-on effect. And how far does this online activity translate into mobilization offline. What we saw in the Arab Spring was it, it had a tremendous effect on mobilization offline. But after what I, what I call the corrective measures that the Arab states took post-Arab Spring, it, 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 offline activity has re reduced a great deal. And when it happens, it happens at a great cost. And uh, with, with COVID, uh, always threatening to keep us online. I, I think this, this is uh, room for, uh, for thought and, and further discussion.